All right, we'll make your way to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. And uh, take your Bible and meet me there in Matthew chapter 4, and we'll study God's Word together this morning. I've been looking forward to this section. Uh, I am a curious guy, so this has got some uh, interesting stuff in it and some uh, opportunities for us to study and meditate on Matthew's purpose for writing, and I've been excited about that. I've enjoyed this entire section. I don't think I've ever uh, meditated deeply on the introduction of Matthew and the introduction of Jesus as the Messiah. All through these chapters, you understand that Matthew, just like any book that you would read, is laying the groundwork of introducing you and introducing really the Jewish nation to the one that was promised and rejected by that nation, none other than Jesus Christ. And so we continue with that introduction all the way through the conclusion of chapter 4. And then beginning in chapter 5, we go where many of you have spent uh, countless time, times meditating on God's Word. We'll go to what is called the Sermon on the Mount, which could be maybe more accurately called the Sermon on the Plateau, where Jesus will teach and uh, give an extensive teaching about the kingdom. And the one who's been introduced will then turn, and Matthew will turn our attention to what he has to say to us as his people um, and what we can learn from the teaching and the ministry and particularly the miracle ministry of Jesus throughout the remainder of this gospel account and this evangelistic account given by Levi, the tax collector. All right, so I trust that you've been enjoying this. If this is your first time with us, you have not missed uh, too many weeks. We are still early in the letter. We have come through and seen the human right to the throne of David that is belonging to Jesus and Jesus alone. We've seen his virgin birth and his divine lineage, if you will. He was born of a virgin through the conception with the Holy Spirit. And we saw that at the end of verse 1 as we enjoyed Christmas in September several weeks ago. And then all the way through chapter 2, he is constantly held up as the fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. He was the promised one and he is the fulfillment of many types and promises. And that's what we examined in chapter 2. And that brought us to the ministry of the forerunner to the Messiah. The second Elijah, the one who came as the final prophet, declaring to the nation and to all people to prepare for the Messiah's ministry was coming. John the Baptist was pointed in his preaching. He confronted those who were there simply for external repentance or identification with a group that they had no business identifying with because their hearts were corrupted. You remember he called them a brood of vipers and questioned why they were there and who told them to come. And he warned them and he warns us that the axe is at the root of the tree. And whatever trees are not bearing fruit will ultimately be cut down in the judgment, and they will be thrown into everlasting fire. Right on the heels of that, at the end of chapter 3, we came to the conclusion with Jesus being baptized. And what a marvelous time that was, what an exciting event in the life of Christ, where he publicly identified himself with the remnant of the Jewish people who were looking forward to his coming, who were looking forward to the kingdom of God coming, on earth. He identifies with them. The Spirit crowns him as the Messiah. 
John the Baptist, we know from the Gospel of John, that was the sign that he was looking for, was the Spirit descending and resting upon Jesus. And then none other than the Father gave affirmation from heaven as the heavens opened, and he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so the entire Trinity, the three persons of the Godhead, were present at the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, confirming that he was, in fact, the Messiah, the one to be worshipped and to be looked to for salvation. That brought us then from the water to wilderness in chapter 4, as we move forward from the testimony of the Father about the Son to the testing of the Son at the hands of Satan. So he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness where he met Satan, and Satan proceeded to tempt him. Three different temptations are recorded for us, though the temptation could have lasted throughout the entire 40 days. These pointed temptations from Satan himself were recorded, and Jesus' response and purity in temptation was a further affirmation and confirmation of his messianic claim, of his testimony that he was the very Son of God, and before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. was the eternal second person of the Trinity come as the suffering servant mentioned in Isaiah. That brings us this week to the early days of Jesus' ministry, to the beginning of Matthew's record of the actual ministry life of our Lord. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning in verses 12 to 17 of chapter 4. And I trust that you'll enjoy this study this morning and that it will be convicting and beneficial to you. Let's read this together and then we'll discuss a little bit of introductory material and then we'll dive into our study. Verse 12 says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, that being Jesus, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles or of the nations, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that I am right in my assessment of the universal uneasiness with darkness. Darkness brings uneasiness to our lives in a physical sense. I remember in junior high, we would make fun of somebody, a kid in our class, and make fun of him because he was still afraid of the dark. The hypocrisy of that mocking is amazing because I am still afraid of the dark today, and I was afraid of the dark then. I'm not afraid of the dark as in I have a little nightlight with a cute little teddy bear on it by my bed, but darkness in a setting that is unfamiliar or that we're not used to can cause a great sense of discomfort and disorientation. Because we cannot perceive what is around us, our mind if it's not disciplined, allows us to start thinking about what might be around us in the darkness. 
And if we allow that to run in our mind, then we can find our legs matching our mind and we begin to run fast from the darkness. How can I get to light? Scripture uses darkness as an illustration for the heart. We understand that, and you know that from your Bible reading, that the heart is dark. And it uses it as it does today in the general sense of spiritual darkness. That is, truthless living. A culture that is devoid of the light of truth. Residing in darkness without any ability to see what is in front or behind or to perceive the right way. Same use is given to blindness, spiritual blindness. It's the same concept, darkness. There is no perception. There is no ability to see. It's darkness that removes our ability to be confident in what is in front of our feet. Biblical darkness can be a very fearful element, and it should be a fearful element because it is so much more of a danger than any physical darkness could be to us. Spiritual darkness leaves us without hope and without understanding of a way to salvation. We are born in darkness. We live at a progressive rate, exceedingly progressive rate, in a culture that is dark and getting darker. And we are placed as God's people in our culture as a salt, which is a preservative that keeps it from eroding faster than it would. And we are set as a, a light. So that in the darkness there is some glimmer, there is some, there is some fading of a light that can be seen by those who live their lives without perception and without the ability to see what is coming. This morning we come to a dark region in Galilee and we find the light coming to that dark region. Last week Jesus was tested and proven in the wilderness and now we move to his affirmation and confirmation in the early ministry years of his life. Now, interesting facts before we jump into our study of this paragraph and that is, first of all, between verse 11 and 12, approximately a year has gone by. And this is confusing for us because we generally read the gospel accounts as chronological history, right? So normally we think that whatever comes next, if we were looking at a watch or a calendar, it would go in order. Matthew, I've mentioned before, and I'll mention again and again, Matthew does not write chronologically. Matthew writes thematically and geographically. And if those words are just totally confusing, he's trying to make a point. He's arguing, so he is using experiences. He is using portions of the life of Christ to make his point, And he is arguing geographically. He is describing for us the life of Christ by region. And so we could divide the entire book, and we will, as we come to sections, and we'll do that today, we could divide it first of all into the Galilean ministry of our Lord, then his ministry to the northern regions in Galilee, beginning of verse, chapter 14, and then finally 
we could conclude with his journey to Jerusalem, his setting his face towards Jerusalem, and ultimately then, at the end of that journey to Jerusalem, our Lord would die and would be resurrected on the third day. So between verse 11 and 12, John chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through John chapter 4, verse 42, gives us the account of what is missing in Matthew's account, or what is not included in Matthew's account, the years of ministry at Judea, the Judean ministry of our Lord. And you know this section. You know some of the events of Judea, right? There is the wedding feast at Cana. That's a common and first miracle recorded in our Lord's ministry. That's between verses 11 and 12, fitted securely in the white space between the two. Jesus calls His disciples. Jesus cleanses the temple. The first time He does that is during His Judean ministry, right at the outset in the first year of His earthly ministry. And Jesus meets with a man named Nicodemus all within the first year in the Judean ministry. So, he is, between verses 11 and 12, busy about his father's work. He is teaching in the synagogues. He is performing miracles. And now we come to verse 12, and Jesus is moving. He is moving towards Galilee. So we have a massive time gap between verse 11 and 12. He's been baptized and he's been introduced to the Jewish nation as the Messiah. He's been tempted and tried. And Matthew now makes his point that even the mundane decision-making of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll see this theme unfold, even the decision-making of our Lord was fulfillment of promises given in the Old Testament. Even the movement of our Lord from one region to another further identified Him, further confirmed Him as the Messiah. And that's exactly what is going on in verses 12 to 17. His ministry decisions and His preaching will fulfill the providential plan of the Father as received through the Old Testament. So, this morning we're going to see the early ministry of Jesus and its further fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy And we're going to do it by dividing this into two sections for us to study this morning. The first one will be the bulk of our time. It will take us from verses 12 to 16. And that will be the messianic movement of Jesus. And then we'll conclude with verse 17 with the messianic message of Jesus. And this will further confirm Matthew's argument that we should bow in worship of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the promised one. Okay, so beginning in verse 12, Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. The Messianic movement begins with a timing. What is the timing behind the movement of Jesus? And we're given some clues here in the actual text. Jesus moved from from Judea up to Galilee. And I know that you have been spending time in your Bible maps because of our interaction with them. So you know that he headed due north. And you know, because of verse 13, that he headed first to Nazareth, to his hometown, to where he grew up as a boy. So he has been in Jerusalem. He has been down in the lower section in Judea. And now, with a timing that is very specific, 
he moves north to Galilee, and it is all because of receiving word of John's imprisonment. Okay, Matthew does not concern himself with any details from the Judean ministry. He is making a beeline for a fulfillment of prophecy in this introduction to further confirm and to further his argument in his gospel account. So there's no discussion of Judean ministry. Secondly, there's no discussion at this time in Matthew's gospel with John's ministry or with the arrest of John. doesn't mention any details of John's imprisonment because that does not feed into his purpose and his point in this paragraph. Now, he does give us some insight later. Go over to Matthew chapter 14, just a few pages to your right. Matthew chapter 14. The whole first paragraph of Matthew chapter 14, which is one of those breakpoints when Jesus now moves north of Galilee. In verse 2 it says, This is John the Baptist. Herod's thinking this is definitely John the Baptist reincarnated. He has been raised from the dead. This is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And then this description is given about John's arrest. For Herod, this is back between verses 11 and 12, Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. I trust you understand the language. Though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because John had such a following because they held him to be a prophet But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, her evil mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was very sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. And he sent and and had John beheaded in prison. That is the account, and that is the story that came back to our Lord Jesus that drove him north to Galilee. You say, now what was it about hearing that John had been in prison that drove our Lord out of the region of Judea? And naturally, your first thought would be what? Fear, right? Wouldn't that be our natural inclination? That Jesus, hearing that John had been imprisoned, said, you know what, I don't think things are stable at this point here, and for the sake of my ministry, I'm going to go north to the region of Galilee. That would be a valid option, except that Galilee was also under the control and under the authority of Herod. So Jesus in no way removes himself from the domain of Herod. He moves for some other reason than to get away from the authority of Herod that had imprisoned John the Baptist. It's not out of fear. Jesus was moving to avoid premature attention and potential death at the hands of the Pharisees. You say, how do we know that? Well, turn over with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. And we are filling in the details between verses 11 and 12 for our understanding this morning. John chapter 4. And all the way through John chapter 4, we have the conclusion of his Judean ministry. And look at verse 1 of chapter 4 in the Gospel of John. John records this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard 
that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And that is the statement that we meet in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 4. So the reason given for the departure and at the hearing of John's arrest was that the full attention of the Pharisees in Judea and in Jerusalem would now be focused on the one Jesus Christ. And their jealousy would be escalated because he was baptizing people. And in their eyes, you know from further accounts, the Pharisees were concerned because their fame was dwindling. So this is the Messianic movement of our Lord. John is in prison. All the attention of the Pharisees and their envy is placed on Jesus. And leaving Judea would provide a gap, at least a stopgap for the focus of the Pharisees and their hatred that would in proper time take Jesus to the cross of Calvary. So, no different than in the temptation of our Lord where he followed the timing of his Father. Remember, the temptations that Satan presented were counterfeits to rightful things to the Lord Jesus. Food, nourishment, protection, and glory, and authority, and dominion. All things that were granted to our Lord, and yet Satan offered them in a counterfeit form. No different now. Jesus was committed to the will of his Father, to the timing of his Father, and even here now we see that same commitment. This is why Jesus, throughout the Gospel accounts, tells people, don't tell anyone who did this to you, or don't go tell them that I'm the Messiah always working in the process and the plan of his Father, knowing what the end would be and trying to avoid confusion about his role on the earth. So the timing is wrapped around the arrest of John and the focus of the Pharisees according to John chapter 4, verse 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the territory or the region to which Jesus goes is Nazareth, but we see in verse 13 and leaving Nazareth. So we're presented with yet another problem because he just got there and now he's leaving. We, Nazareth is in the heart of Galilee. So we have another time gap because he's leaving Nazareth. Are you following? Are we tracking together? Verse 11 and 12 have some year between them where he was in Judea ministering. And then verse 12 and 13 have several months between them where he was actually in his hometown ministering to the people at Nazareth. So in between verses 12 and 13, Luke chapter 4 fills in the details of Jesus' ministry at Nazareth. And you'll remember from that account, he was teaching in the synagogues, he opened the scroll, he read from the book of Isaiah, and he closed the scroll, and he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. Our Lord went to Nazareth and said, what was promised is here. I, Jesus of Nazareth, am the fulfillment of this portion of the scrolls. And the conclusion in Luke chapter 4 of those words is found in verse 30 of Luke 4. This was the conclusion of the matter at Nazareth. Here is what led to verse 13 when we come to our section in Matthew chapter 4. Verse 28 says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, with rage. 
And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the, to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And we come to Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, and leaving Nazareth. Okay, so those are the events surrounding the context of this movement of our Lord and the foundation of Matthew's look at the ministry of the Messiah. He is now heading north, further north into Galilee from Nazareth. Jesus was rejected in Nazareth. He left them to venture north to preach to the town of Capernaum. And we see that in verse 13. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. You say, what is the point in all of this detail? What is the point for Matthew in giving us so little about major portions of Jesus' life, the first year and a half or so of Jesus' ministry, so the rest of the time that we're in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll only spend the final two years or the final year and a half of his earthly ministry, why was Matthew so, what was he so concerned with that he felt it appropriate to move directly past those details? What was he trying to get across? And when we get to the final phrase of verse 13, we have a clue to the intent of Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to get to Capernaum because Capernaum is situated in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew is very concerned at the end of his introduction to the person and the ministry of Jesus that we get to Capernaum. Because in arriving at Capernaum, we get to the regions of Zebulun and of Naphtali. These are ancient tribal designations from the nation of Israel to this land. Matthew now makes reference to this specific point for which he has been writing. Joshua chapter 19 gives us a glimpse at this tribal distribution. You remember these portions where the tribes were given boundaries to their land. You've read your Old Testaments potentially and you know these things. Naphtali and Zedlin were given the region that surrounded Capernaum. Capernaum sat in the middle of the two designations to these tribes of Israel. Not only that, but Judges chapter 1, verse 30 and 33 tell us that Zebulun and Naphtali did not drive out the people who were living there. They did not drive out the Gentiles out of the land. So eventually they intermarried, and the corruption that came, the paganism that was intermingled with the worship of the true God, resulted in Galilee being a despised a despised land to those who were in Judea. Galilee was the lower class area of this portion of Israel. The ge- geography takes purpose with these two names given to us, Zebulun and Naphtali. We start to see the intent of why we are here. Now, let me just make a comment for you in your general Bible study. When you come to verse 14 in your general Bible study, I would think that the majority of the translations represented here have two words, or at least have one word, that or so that. 
How many of you found so that at the beginning of verse 14? So that? Okay, many of you. When you come to portions of Scripture that begin with so that, you should be making a mental note, at least, if not a note in your Bible, that a purpose statement is coming. Here's the reason why what has just been said has just been said. And so in this section, this is, this is the key that unlocks the point of the paragraph. Matthew's giving us a purpose statement. He came there for this reason. And we would have to expect the reason to be to preach, to declare His kingdom, to minister in the synagogues, to instruct the people. That was the purpose for which Jesus came to the region. But Matthew gives us the eternal purpose, the divine purpose, the messianic purpose in Jesus' movement north to Galilee. Jesus was moving so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus was moving so that the providential will of God would be lived out in His life. Jesus was confirming His messianic claim with every decision and movement of His ministry. Now we have Matthew's point. This is the point of this section. This is why Matthew made a beeline for Capernaum. Unlike the other Gospel accounts. This is why a year and some months are skipped over. It is for this purpose in the introduction of Jesus to get to this fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. So in the movement, we come then to the prophecy. And let's just look briefly at it. It's not difficult for us to see. But it comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And you know Isaiah chapter 9 for other promises. If we go back there and just take a glimpse, there are phenomenal promises about the Messiah throughout chapter 9. But this particular one is only addressed here as being about our Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. And verse 6 is so common to our understanding. Isaiah 9, 6, for, us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Speaking of our Lord's reign on the throne of David. This is the prophecy given to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali that all would not always be darkness in this land. And the arrival of Jesus at the hearing of John's imprisonment and after a stay in the, land, in the city of Nazareth to minister and after being nearly killed prematurely in Nazareth and fleeing through their midst, Jesus now comes to Capernaum and he fulfills Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. The move to Capernaum in this prophecy was a move towards the nations. My translation, the ESV, says Galilee of the Gentiles. If you have nations there, that's probably a little more accurate. The concept here is that it would be a blessing 
to all the nations. Galilee was considered to be Gentile because it was made up of Gentiles and Jews and Gentiles and Jews who were married, which to the Jewish mind was worse than even just being a pure Gentile. Here Jesus goes to a despised land beyond the Jordan and He brings light to a dark region. The move of our Lord in verse 16 was a great light coming to darkness. So this is poetry, and I think you can see that probably in your translation. It's probably set up for you like poetry. If not, understand that verse 16 is Hebrew poetry, and in Hebrew poetry we find parallelism as one of the greatest tools in Hebrew poetry. So basically the first two phrases of verse 16 are synonymous with the second two phrases of verse 16. The parallelism is a lesser to the greater. So the first phrase tells us a clear statement about what was happening. The second phrase elaborates on that statement and gives us more detail poetically about what was going on. Here's what was happening. People were dwelling in darkness and seeing a great light because of Jesus' arrival. For those dwelling in a region and shadow of death, that's further describing the darkness, on them a light has dawned, and that is graphic language of a shining light dawning on people in darkness. The light is never so bright as it is when we are in utter darkness. Right? Our eyes squint and hurt depending on how dark it has been in a room when the light is flipped on, and here are a people who have lived their entire existence in darkness, without truth, and the light of Jesus Christ has come to their village. He's come to Capernaum, and he has fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. Now, I don't want to go too far down this path, but I want you to understand that nothing has changed in the ministry of Jesus Christ and in his work of salvation. It has always been light coming to darkness. It has always been medical help arriving to those who are sick. Jesus never came to bring light to those who thought they had all the light in the world, nor did he come to bring healing to those who thought they had no illness. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked. We are born in utter darkness. And the only hope of salvation is that the light would shine in darkness and that we would be given eyes to see and ears to hear. So this is the messianic promise fulfilled. Jesus comes to Galilee of the Gentiles and he comes to a dark region as the light. So that's the messianic movement. Okay, The movement has been established. Matthew's purpose is clear. He wanted to reconfirm again for us that the Old Testament was being fulfilled in the, in the daily life of Jesus. And that could only be true of the Messiah. We should bow our heads in worship because Jesus was the promised one. And then Matthew concludes by giving us the second facet, and that is the messianic message of Jesus. And he just makes a quick comment to the preaching the proclamation ministry of Jesus. And it's here that the preaching ministry is established 
in the land of Galilee. Verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach. He had been instructing in the synagogues. He had been teaching. He had been, he had been active with people. And yet at this point he begins to proclaim, to declare saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John has been imprisoned. The forerunner has ceased his preaching publicly. And Jesus now, a year or so into his ministry, begins to preach. And his preaching is oh so familiar from John chapter, or from Matthew chapter 3 because it is identical in its message and in its content to the message and the preaching of John the Baptist. The messianic message of Jesus is still the same as John's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark chapter 1 gives a little fuller detail and tells us just a little bit more. Mark chapter 1 verse 14 says, turn there, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And you know from your basic study that the gospel is translated for it is good news. The good news was that the time had come and that the kingdom was here. John was saying, prepare your heart, because the kingdom is close at hand. Jesus is saying, repent, prepare your heart, for the kingdom is in your midst. It is before you. The kingdom of heaven, both physical and spiritual, was in the presence of the people of Capernaum in the land of Galilee. And through the rejection of the Jewish nation, of their king, of their Messiah was brought a delay in the establishment of the physical kingdom of Jesus Christ. That will be established after His second coming. But His kingdom was present and is present even today in the hearts of His people in the spiritual element of His presence and His kingship over us. So Jesus says, repent. You'll remember our discussion of repentance in John's preaching. Repentance is a 180 degree turn away from our own way and to the way of the King, to the way of the Messiah, to the only way of salvation. So Jesus' message is prepare yourselves because the promised one is standing before you and the kingdom is here. And repentance is the only appropriate response to those who encounter the King of the Kingdom of Heaven. Now, there is a need for discussion about the Kingdom of Heaven because it will set up and it will hold up the remainder of our Lord's teaching throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He will reference the Kingdom of Heaven over and over and over again. And we are going to deal with the kingdom in some detail over the next several weeks so that we have a firm grasp of what it is that the Lord is instructing us and what He is calling these people to and what 
its relation is to us as a church here in this age and in this time, looking backwards to his words. So this is the Messianic preaching. The movement has been to Galilee, away from Judea, to the Gentiles, to darkness. He comes as light, and his preaching has been repentance, for his kingdom is at hand, it is here. Now, all of that is for the same emphasis, for the same purpose that every other section in the introduction has been given. So that you and I and the nation of Israel at large would be presented with insurmountable evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no man comes to the Father but by Him. It's been my prayer throughout this entire week that our study of these paragraphs would not become routine, would not become mundane because they emphasize the same thing over and over again from a different angle, but that they would ground us, that they would confirm in us our confidence and our trust that Jesus is the only Messiah. Not only is He the only Messiah, but He must be worshipped as he is revealed on the pages of Scripture. He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is the promised one. And he alone has been confirmed through the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. The the prophecy fulfilled is one of light coming to darkness. I thought of Ephesians 5, 7-8 in conclusion today. I thought it would be appropriate for us to go to Ephesians chapter 5 and to be reminded about our own darkness and the miracle of light that's been granted. Ephesians 5, verse 7 says, Therefore do not become partakers with them, that is, with those who do not know the Lord. For at one time you were, you were darkness. Darkness was used to describe us before Christ, but now... Verse 8 says, You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of, of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The prophecy was fulfilled. Light had come to darkness. And it leaves us with a few questions at the conclusion of our study this morning. First of all, Do you know and worship this one? And I'll ask again, as I have before, do you worship this one or is it one given the name Jesus, but he's of your own making? This is the one who will judge. This is the one who can save. Do you know him? Have you repented? Have you turned from sin and your own way to follow after Christ. We're going to see the calling of the disciples, fishers of men, familiar sections. And the theme is, drop what you're doing, your direction, and follow me. Repentance. Because the kingdom is at hand. Have you turned? And are you now following the one true Messiah? The only mediator between God and men. If not... Today is the day of salvation. Right? This is the time. If you are alive, if 
you are breathing and you have vital signs, then you are still within the time frame of grace. Your days are numbered. And when your days have come to an end and you die, after that is the judgment. There is no grace after death. Today is the day. Now is the opportunity for you to turn and to follow Christ. Repenting of your sin. Confessing your sin as what it is. As the enemy of God. And embracing Christ as your Lord and Savior. And following after Him. For those of you and many of you, I know, who do know and worship this one, the Messiah. Have you meditated deeply this week? Have you thought through the greatness of the one you serve? Have you been reconfirmed in your commitment that He is worthy of your allegiance? We battle, we struggle with our flesh, our heart is weak, our heart is prone to deception. The principle of sin still resides in us who know Him. We need confirmed again and again that He is the Messiah and because of His Messianic claim, He has the right to the entirety of our lives. There's no part of us that is outside of His rightful claim. We are His. We are His servants. We are His slaves. And He is the great and kind and loving Master. So I ask you this morning, Are you walking as if Jesus is, in fact, the one who He claimed to be? If so, if you love Me, Jesus said, if you love Me, what? You will keep My commandments. Obedience is the watermark on the ones who have affirmed and been confirmed that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. This is the message of Matthew chapter 4. This is the message of Matthew chapter 1 through 4, and it will lead us all the way through. He is who He said He was. He's confirmed. He's been tested. He's been tried. He's been declared from heaven to be the one true Messiah. And now today, even in His decisions and His direction, God is fulfilling prophecy through the life of Jesus. Take confidence. And if you don't know Him, place your faith in this one because He is the only one who offers you salvation.